All right. Well, now I got to act like we just met really quick. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks everybody for joining in with Theology with Friends. Um, I've got a new friend today. Um, at least I'm new to him. Um, he is certainly not new to me. His name is Dr. Nijay Gupta. Thanks for coming on, sir. My pleasure. Good to be with you today. Yeah, I came upon your work um, really firstly through Tell Her Story, which is, mm-hmm. that's right, Tell Her. Yeah. You got um, it. Yeah, Tell Her Story, and I think I heard it on a podcast, and I was like, what is this book? Who is this scholar? And I should have known about you, but I'm pretty new to this world, so I was ecstatic to see a lot of your work and um, honestly about to utilize some of your commentaries and things like that. But Tell Her Story was like very eye-opening for me because I write on women in ministry and um, I'm for it um, and I'm for it because of scripture. And I think Mm -hmm. that is um, distinct in in the way that I'm interpreting scripture and interpreting this question of can women be leaders and things like that. And so um, your book was really cool because it talked about scripture, uh, holding a high view of it and, uh, utilizing it for the argument that, uh, women were everywhere doing everything. And, um, so yeah, that was mainly, uh, the reason, uh, I wanted to have you on. Hopefully you're not too tired to talk about it because I know it's been out for a while. Yeah. It's, you're getting to this like a year later. Come on. (laughs) Um, no, it's, it's fun. You know, my, my daughter and I are watching suits, the TV show, because once it went to Netflix, Now, like a whole generation is so it's like if a whole generation picks up Tell Her Story because of Netflix uh, deal, that's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, so you talked about a lot of key figures from the New Testament that were women. Mm-hmm. And yeah. of course, I on this podcast have talked about Junia before, she was a part of my scholarship and my thesis. But um, I wanted to see if you could hit on a couple before we go too far. Um, there were a couple that hit me. And that were pretty convincing. Um, mm-hmm. Iodia and Syntyche was one yeah. Yeah. or two, I should say. Um, so I wonder if we could start there. Maybe it'll kind of flow into some other things like Phoebe and things like that. But I'd love if we could start there. Um, who were they and why are yeah. they important to, totally. this, to this aspect? Right. You take, you know, you take your average uh, Christian today and you ask them, close your eyes and imagine, imagine the average church in the first century, let's say, in Paul's ministry. And you're imagining a bunch of men sitting around, you know, in a room reading the Bible or something like that. Philippi is really interesting because uh, if you take the book of Acts, you take uh, Philippians and you're trying to reconstruct who, who were Christians in Philippi. Hmm. What's fascinating is we know more of the names of men than women. So in terms of men, you have Epaphroditus and you have Clement, who may or may not be in Philippi. Uh, but for women, you have Yodia, who's a woman, Syntyche, who's a woman, and Lydia. And so then you have the unnamed jailer, you know, so you have some more men there. But um, that's just really interesting to me that one of the earliest Christian communities had three women. Uh, some people think Lydia is Yodia or Syntyche. We, we could talk about that later. But <laughs> you have these women there. What I'm really fascinated about is we tend to work in these really rigid boxes like was she a pastor? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Was she ordained? What seminary did she go to? And and they just didn't have those boxes. Like pastor, they didn't use that term. It appears briefly in Ephesians. Yeah. We can talk about that later if you want. You have the language of uh, deacons, diakonos. You have the language of overseers, episcopos. 
they are actually mentioned in Philippians 1.1 1, 1, or uh, in the first chapter. But um, the way that Paul naturally talks about leaders is they work hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they're mm-hmm. co-workers. They're brothers and sisters. And basically they risk, they risk, they're risk taking for the gospel. Those are the ways mm-hmm. that he, if you look at Romans 16, which has tons of women, Mary of Rome, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, the brother uh, of uh, the sister of Nereus, the mother Rufus, all these women mentioned. Now, when we get to Yoni and Syntyche, what's really fascinating is they had some disagreement. Paul says that, you know, I call on these two women to come together and agree. She sends someone to help. He sends someone to help. But most people in the past, in this recent past, have thought these, this is like a woman's spat. This is like, mm-hmm. you know, they're fighting over what color the curtains are, or the carpet or something. But it... What I've learned from ancient letter writing is it's really expensive to write mm. a letter and send a letter. There's a scholar named Randy Richards. He estimates that a letter like 1 Corinthians or Romans, where it's 15, 16 chapters, would cost equivalent today of about two to $3,000. Yep. So you're not, sticking, you're not talking wow. about just drafting a letter and sticking a postage stamp on it. You're talking about working with a professional letter secretary for possibly weeks you're talking about the supplies. You're talking about a courier. You're talking about the, the safety of the courier, mm-hmm. travel expenses, all of that. So anytime an ancient writer puts pen to paper, it's every word counts. Think about the old telegram okay. days, you know, send help or whatever. It's You're going to – every word's precious. So I've learned a couple things. One is Paul's not going to talk about minor things in a mm-hmm. letter. He's actually just going to tell the letter carrier, deal with this crap when you get there. <laughs> if it's just yeah. a minor thing, like tell these people, stop stop gossiping. He would actually just tell the letter carrier and they would deal with that. Okay. Or, and I think more likely, if Paul had private issues that he wanted to address, he could send that in a separate private letter. So public issues would go in a public letter. Private issues would go in a private letter. People do this all the time. Okay. And we have all this information from something called the Oxyrhynchus papyri. This is just a scrap heap of materials we found in the ancient Egyptian city of Oxyrhynchus. That is a lot of ancient letters from from around the time of the New Testament. We learned so much about day-to-day correspondence, week-to-week correspondence, and we learned that this is just how people did things. So whatever Paul's calling out their disagreement, it was a big deal. Yeah. How do we know that? The way he talks about them. He says, Mm -hmm. they have wrestled or struggled side by side with me to contend for the faith of the gospel. That's big business. That's that's ministry. That's the heart of what Paul does. He's in prison. And these are his coworkers. He's basically saying they're people like me. He says their names are written in the book of life. He doesn't mean they're Christian. They already know they're Christian. (laughs) That's not new news to the Philippians. He's basically saying like they have a whole page dedicated to them because of how awesome they are. Like, these are awesome leaders, and they deserve your respect. And then he says, fellow yoke person, assist them in whatever they need. This They need mediation, right? Mm -hmm. They need – so these are important people. And in the Roman world, a typical way you deal two women fighting is you say, you ladies are crazy. Knock it off or you'll get in trouble. (laughs) Like, we have so many texts from the ancient world that talk down to women, Uh that treat them as silly and – worthless and here paul gives the utmost respect to these women yeah he's like these are big leaguers and we need to honor and respect them but i do want them to come to some sort of agreement yeah yeah wow 
that I, this was the, my favorite part of the book is when you bring in the context like that. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, I just don't, I, so many people don't know about letters and what's the importance. Yeah. I mean, especially since you can, I mean, the Bible's literally on your iPhone. Um, it's not a letter anymore. It's just like a random book or uh, yeah. paraphrase and a, you know, something like that. So yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I do want to go towards the Ephesians thing, like you said with pastor, because when talking about women like this and explaining the importance and they've got a whole page in the book of life, things like this, they've wrestled with me. Well, I know pr- plenty of SBC pastors who are like, yeah, I got women that, man, they fight hard for the gospel with me in their women's ministry. You know, it's like, it's never a leadership like equivalent. Like, uh, is Paul trying to say equivalence in this? Is he saying they're on the level of pastors or apostles or something like that? Or is this going to be another way an SBC pastor or some, some commentary could say, you know, they're, they're doing good work. Keep it up. They're doing good work. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what, what's interesting, let's go back to Romans 16 is, um, how many names of women Paul actually knows? Hmm. So let's say the church in Rome had, um, you know, 300 people, right? And he names, you know, 10 people right away there. So he's naming a significant number of leaders. Let's say there are 30 leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And he's naming, you know, 40 leaders, 50 leaders. He's naming 15, you know, 10 of them right there. Um, Do we know the names of the women leaders in our church? You know, do do we treat them with the same level of respect? Even if we don't give them that that equality, I do think that Mm -hmm. Paul was doing something different than some of my Southern Baptist friends, but um, we yeah. can't answer those questions from Philippians, I don't think, by itself. Now, Paul did mention the overseers and deacons in chapter one. It's hard to know if these two women correspond to those, but a, mm-hmm. a popular theory, and I like the theory, is that um, these two women were leaders, possibly deacons, uh, and they disagreed. This is a, a dissertation by a scholar named Mark Jennings. They disagree on whether or not to send money to Paul in prison. They're like, one of them, let's say Euodia is saying, um, we've always supported Paul. We always will. Let's just give some money. Now, the church was going through hard times. Mm-hmm. So the, co- the coffers were pretty empty. So they're like, should we spend our last, you know, 20 bucks mm-hmm. sending some ointment and blankets to Paul in prison? and an apple or something, you know, or a loaf of bread, not an apple Mac, but an apple, uh, (laughs) saying to Paul, Paul in prison. So they're wondering, you know, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel of our funds. We got our own people to take care of, but do we send the last bits of money we have to him? (laughs) And then let's say Syntyche was saying, I actually think maybe his time's over. Maybe he's not going to make it. So maybe let's not waste our money. Let's move on to somebody else. Let's start, (laughs) let's support another initiative. And in the end, one of them won and one of them lost because they did send the money to Paul. Mm -hmm. And he says, thank you. We don't know if that's true. I actually think that that would make Mm -hmm. sense contextually that he's commending them. And what's beautiful is he doesn't say Syntyche was right, Yodio is wrong. He says, I respect both of them. Just come to some agreement for the future. Mm -hmm. We don't know if that's going on. But I think you're asking the question, do we have evidence of women serving at the highest level of leadership? Yeah. I'm going to point to two things. Firstly, um, I'm going I'm to do a little bit of ideological criticism for you. Since you're a seminary student, you should know what these words mean. <laughs> sure. um, what, what's behind some of these questions about whether, whether women can be pastors? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And yes, obedience to scripture, obedience to God, the truth of scripture. I get all that. Yes. But there are things we don't obey in scripture, like fasting. You know, I mean, a lot of Protestants yeah. don't obey the, 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 the commands to fast or the expectations around prayer, prayer continuously. There's a lot of things we don't do. So why is this one such a big deal? Hmm. I think that if someone takes a hardline complementary approach that says women can't be elders or lead pastors, then it says something about their understanding of anthropology, specifically what I call gyneanthropology. What does it mean to be a woman? And andro anthropology was it mean to be a man? Mm-hmm. Because we can't just say the Bible says it. That's fine with the Trinity. Trinity's a mystery. Okay. I have some theories using like sports analogies. That's for another podcast, but I can't explain the <laughs> Trinity. When it comes to ethical things, I want to know. Like mm. if God said to me, Nija, I want you to kill your 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 son, I would say, I think this is a trick. I'm not gonna do it because the Sermon on the Mount, because the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. I'm in a different yeah. position than Abraham, because I know. But I want to I want to have answers. I want to say, God, I trust you, but I know that you don't like killing, so I need to know why. <laughs> mm-hmm. I need to know how this is ethical, right? Yeah. I'm not just going to do it. So this issue around women, it's an ethical issue. So we have to actually ask, what is it about women? And what's interesting, we're going down the rabbit hole here, Paxton. Let's do it. What's interesting is prior to the 1960s and 70s, the most common reason that men would use for why women shouldn't be pastors is they don't have the skills and qualities mm. innately that mm. make them capable of competent, righteous, good leadership. So many examples I could show you. Read any of the church fathers. Yeah. <laughs> read any of the reformers. But then also read any commentaries, uh, especially written by pastors in the 18th, sorry, in the 19th and early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But after the 1960s and 70s, the conversation changed. Why? The civil rights movement. Because now you have women who are CEOs, Mm. senators, um, academics, you know, presidents of seminaries, presidents of colleges, universities. And now the competency issue that still rears its ugly head, but that got set aside. So then I'm doing really broad sketching here. (laughs) You had some conservatives that switched from capability language to gender roles. This is where we got the gender roles movement. Mm There was a kind of gamble made in the 1970s and 80s to say, let's shift the dialogue away from arguing how smart is a woman? Because they're, you know, <laughs> most of my best seminary <laughs> students are women. Yeah. Uh, it's just no brainer for me. Uh, I'm not saying they're better <laughs> than men. I'm just saying there's no question about capability. Yeah. Um, so then it shifted gender roles, which was more about just kind of the place that God wants to see people. Like, who's going to take care of the kids? And who's going to take care of the home? And, you know, it, it, it wasn't about capability. It was just about, about uh, uh, spheres, different spheres of life. Right? Here's what I think happened, Paxton. I think those people, Council of Biblical Men and Womanhood and the Gospel Coalition, they gambled and they lost. Because without a compelling ideological reason, you have these women, women that often what I call backdoor in a ministry. They say, hey, would you volunteer for children's ministry? And they do, and they're great. Hey, will you help out in the youth ministry? They do, and they're great. Hey, our youth pastor left. Would you be the youth pastor? Yes. And now all of a sudden they're running to church. Yeah. First of all, I think that's great. But the back door <laughs> meant nobody was watching the back door. And you got all these women in ministry that are proving they're actually, many of them are actually really, really good at it, as, yeah. as equally good as men. And so... What you end up seeing is um, a, a need, a need for this 
answer to the question. Mm-hmm. Why would God not want women to be leaders? They might say, what about the children? Everybody thinks about the children. Well, back in those days, um, uh, many children died uh, young ages. And so you had a lot of widows and the widows helped out in church. So when it came to the family question, um, many of the early Christian women leaders were widows or single. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, uh, you also have the situation where most households had slaves, not most, many households had slaves Mm -hmm. and the slaves could take care of the children. As horrible as slavery is, it was a workforce. And so then you had these women freed up, especially upper class women and people like Phoebe probably who were able to travel freely or Lydia. Um, so I want to, I want to have you keep that question mm-hmm. about what is a woman and what makes her intellectually, emotionally different than a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to keep the back of your mind and I want to just tell you why I started the book the way I did. Mm-hmm. I actually don't start in the new Testament. I start in the old Testament with Deborah. Mm-hmm. And it was a little risky because I'm like, okay, I don't want to just talk about the New Testament as if the Old Testament never existed. But I can't talk about the whole Old Testament because I want it to be under 200 pages or around 200 pages. So I start with Deborah because if I'm on an elevator with someone and they say, why do you believe in women in ministry? To me, Deborah is the easiest person to talk about because the information from Scripture is so clear once you actually look at it. Most people don't read Judges, but once you look at it, it's clear. (laughs) So here you have a woman. So this was the darkest era, one of the darkest eras of Israel's history. There are three things that are repeated in the book of Judges. Um, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And there was not yet a king in Israel. Meaning this was Israel's zombie apocalypse. Like, (laughs) Like it was anarchy. It was chaos. They had failed to drive out the Canaanites according to the book of Joshua. And now they're in the land, but they're just being absolutely plagued by the Canaanites. And they keep screwing up. And so God raises up these judges. And the word judge is a little bit of a misnomer. Most of the judges are temporary national leaders who fight off the enemy and restore peace in the land. Gideon, Samson, Mm -hmm. right? What about Deborah? Well, Deborah, for all intents and purposes, is the sole key leader of Israel. You have a military leader, Barak, but she, she, he actually comes to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, the other, like the other judges, she is kind of responsible for Israel. She's actually called a mother of Israel, mother in Israel. Secondly, though, t- two other things stand out about her versus the other judges. One is she's a prophet. Now, one thing about Gideon and Samson is they weren't tuned into God at all. <laughs> they were not tuned into God. It was like you just randomly picked someone off the street and said, hey, I'm going to make you the leader of the people of God. <laughs> but but a prophet isn't isn't like your psychic friends. They're not like using a crystal ball. They, they have a, a special connection to God. Hmm. And they're able to to utilize that to benefit their people. So she's a prophet, which gives her spiritual uh, insight. Mm-hmm. She's also judging the people of Israel. And you don't judge it based on the American Constitution. You judge it based on the word of God. So if you're the judge, you're also the spiritual leader because she's mm. weighing their cases. Imagine someone murders somebody or 
something happens and she's deciding she's opening up scripture hmm. to figure out what to do. They had nothing yeah. else. They had no body of laws or legislation apart from Holy Scripture, what we yeah. would call Holy Scripture, the law mm -hmm. of Moses. So she's the, in theory, le legislative leader, judicial leader, and she's also the spiritual leader. Um, now, if she could do all those things, what is she doing that we wouldn't want a pastor to do, right? What is she doing where we're saying, whoa, 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 if this woman gets up there and does <laughs> X, Y, and Z, or this woman needs to be home with her children. What about Deborah? We know he was, she, he was, she was married, right? His mm -hmm. name's her husband's Lapidoth. Why is she not at home? Cause she's busy. Yeah. She's got stuff yeah. to do, yeah. right? Send Lapidoth to do that. I don't know what happened to Lapidoth. <laughs> and then another common argument is people will say she was only made a judge because nobody else, no, mm -hmm. no valid man was there. Have you read the book of judges? The judges were not models of virtue at all. Yeah. There was no ethical test <laughs> for the judges. Yeah. They, you know, Samson was as he, he, he broke every law in the book in terms of <laughs> ethics. Yeah. He had a Nazarite vow. He broke all three of his mm -hmm. vows mm -hmm. boldly. And then he shacked up with the Canaanite. So, I mean, it wasn't going to be hard to do better than Samson. Secondly, if God wanted to choose a traditional judge, mm -hmm. he's looking for a male military leader. Is there one in the story? Yes, his name is Barack and he's literally right there. Yeah. So when God's choosing Deborah, like Barack's like, woohoo, I'm over here. Did you forget about me? So that argument is just not valid. And yeah. the beautiful thing is the book of Judges has the song of Deborah. Because we say sometimes we hear mm. people say, Oh, she shouldn't have been judge or that she wasn't a real judge. She's the only one who gets a a theological victory song in her name. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty baller. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, Samson doesn't get that. Gideon doesn't get that. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'd point to her jumping to the New Testament. I would say an easy example to talk about is Junia. Mm -hmm. So uh, Junia uh, is talked about Romans 16. A few things are said about her. So Paul, when I read Romans 16, it feels kind of like a list of greetings. It's actually more than that. Hmm. I call it an honor roll. It's a list of commendations. Paul is saying, these people are great leaders. Be like them. Because he, he doesn't just say, you know, hi, how are you? Um, you know, mm -hmm. he doesn't actually know a lot of these people, maybe by reputation. But the ones he does know, how does he know them? They travel for ministry, right? Yeah. So you have Junia, and he says a few fascinating things about Junia and her husband, Andronicus. Number one, they're Jewish, so he feels a special kinship with them. Number two, they're in Christ before me. Think about that. They converted before Paul. Paul converted pretty darn early, right? Yeah. According to the book of Acts, it's pretty early. Yeah. So in all likelihood, uh, not in all likelihood, but there's, I think there's a good possibility they actually knew Jesus. They're Jewish, right? They're mm -hmm. converted before Paul. And then it says uh, they were uh, uh, prominent among the apostles. Now, some translations say noteworthy to the apostles. Some say prominent among the apostles. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have time to get into like a three-hour argument <laughs> about this, but I will say one one of the ways that we solve these kind of debates, because it's not solved by just looking at the Greek, I wish, but it's not, is to look at the earliest reception history in the patristic writers. Mm, We're talking yeah. St. John Chrysostom. We're talking Jerome, the Theodore Mopsostia, Theodore Cyrus, so forth. And several of them, 
just say without qualifying or without complaining that she was an apostle hmm. and no one says she wasn't an apostle. Yeah. So that that's something. But think about this. Put the pieces together. It says they're noteworthy among the apostles and they're imprisoned for the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, part of my research for Teller's story, I looked at women in prison. We have very little, almost no record of women going to prison in the Roman world. Wow. It's extremely rare. If you're a woman and you shoplift at Walmart in the ancient world and you get caught You'll either mm -hmm. be beaten on the spot or you'll be sent home to be beaten or shamed by your family. Petty crimes, you don't go to prison. Mm. Prisons were not places for punishment. Prisons were holding places for trial. Now, you could be stuck in prison for days, months, weeks, months, or years. Yeah. But they weren't a final punishment. The closest thing to that would be exile. You'd be sent in exile. Mm -hmm. So... Women rarely committed high crimes, or if they were, they, they were probably executed, probably. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Rarely would they have the, rarely would a, and prisons were notoriously overcrowded, so you didn't want to spend your space on a woman. Um, but she went to prison. And, and, and one of the only other records of a woman, woman going to prison in the Roman world is another Christian named Perpetua. Mm-hmm from the legend, The Passion of Perpetua and Felicity. And also in that story, it's pretty clear it's rare. And so why is she going to prison? Like what kind of crime? Like Paul wouldn't commend her for murder or theft yeah. or yeah. like stealing someone's Hummer or something like that, right? Yeah. Paul's not going to do that. So your really best option, I talk about this in my book, your best option is creating a public disturbance like Paul does in the book of Acts pretty much on a regular basis. Yeah. So then the question is, what's she doing out there? What's she doing out there? Shouldn't she be inside somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> right? What's she doing out there? And then, if she is part of that mob creating a public disturbance, why would she get rounded up to go to prison? Mm. That's a big deal. Shouldn't yeah. have, In my mind, it shouldn't have happened. There would be no reason to send a woman to prison because they're not a threat. The reason you send people to prison to go to a trial is they're a threat to the Roman order and you have to make an example out of them. Yeah. Perhaps she's high class and she's important enough not to execute right away mm -hmm. and she needs to go before a magistrate. So to me, those signs point to her being a big deal in early Christianity. Yeah. She got on the radar of Rome. That makes more sense. She's noteworthy as an apostle rather than she's noteworthy to the apostles. Some people think that she was actually part of the 70 mm. that are sent yeah. out as apostles in Luke chapter 10. I used to think they were they were men, male pairs, but I was I became convinced by um, some of the Lucan scholarship that it, it makes more sense they're male female pairs for two reasons. Yeah. One is Luke really likes male female pairs, <laughs> right? You have Joseph yeah. and Mary, you have Zacharias and Elizabeth, you have all these parables about men and women, the, the lost shepherd, the lost coin, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. He loves the, the men women pairs. Yeah. And so it makes sense. And then practically, the men can do ministry with men. The women can do ministry with women. Mm -hmm. Luke also has a bunch of stories about women that aren't anywhere else, like the women that are with Jesus in Luke chapter 8. Yeah. Like yeah. Joanna, Susanna, and all the others. Mm -hmm. And then um, the women at the cross. He goes out of his way to talk about the women at the cross, Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. all of that. So it makes sense, actually, that I actually I, I favor the view that Junia 
is an apostle because she was actually sent out by the Lord Jesus. Yep. And so her being probably older than Paul, he would have think of her as one of his heroes. If mm. Paul had heroes, he didn't actually didn't like the apostles. <laughs> he had a hard time with the apostles like Peter and yeah. James and John. He got along with them in the sense for mission. But I think if, if there's anybody that would qualify as his aunties and uncles, you know, in Indian culture, we say auntie and uncle, mm-hmm. they would be Andronicus and Junia. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask really quick, because uh, I've been to Romans a good bit lately, hmm? is there some theory to thinking that uh, Andronicus and Junia, were their names Hellenist names, or were they um, Jewish? I, I actually can't remember. They're not. I, I just actually graded a dissertation on this. They're not Jewish names, although okay. Andronicus uh, is not a Jewish name, but Junia... Um, uh, Junia is a common Roman name, but there's a scholar named Richard Bacham who argues that sometimes Jews would have a similar Latin alternate to their name. So mm-hmm. it's, it could be that Junia and Joanna are the same person. I actually don't think that's the case. Um, and I don't think Paul necessarily would have called her uh, Junia if she was Joanna and vice versa. But there's that theory there. Um, I think the strongest information is that Junia was a very common Latin name. Okay. Okay. Because I, I, I had written a bit on like apostleship and how, uh, you know, there's other apostles. And uh, I kind of argued for its continuation and through women, um, mm-hmm. even into second, third century and fourth and fifth. So, um, but one of my things was focusing on, you know, like Apollos, who was, he was never not an apostle to Paul. Like Paul never said he's not an apostle. Right. One time he might've called him a super apostle, you know, kind of making fun <laughs> of that. But, um, yes. but that, yeah. that was one of the things was one of my arguments was that like Apollos, um, was not a Jew and he wouldn't have seen the risen Christ. He wouldn't have been, um, he, he probably was converted after, oh, after, yeah. Uh, Could someone yeah. be called an, an apostle that wasn't a witness of, uh, mm-hmm. of Jesus' resurrection. Th- that's an open discussion right now. Um, I will say there were definitely more than 12 apostles. Yeah. Because Barnabas is called an apostle in the book of Acts. It may have been an accident, and kind of a slip of the tongue of Luke. I don't think it was. I don't okay. assume that, just the bare fact of it. <laughs> but this idea of someone being noteworthy among the apostles meant it's got to be more than 12 or 13 or else they would get, you know, if there's yeah. just 12 of them, they are going to fight over who's the most best. So my sense yeah. is there was an apostolic school. So the language that Luke uses in chapter 10, Luke 10, of sending out the 70 is sending them out as apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are at least 70. But I actually think there was kind of an apostolic school that formed mm-hmm. that would include Barnabas and maybe even Paul's uh, mentees like Timothy, mm. um, that sort of thing. So um, I, I don't know how loose it is. I think I think I might I can't remember in the book if I differentiate between capital A apostle and lowercase a apostle. I think you. Might, I do yeah. think there was. I do think there's something like that going on. Sometimes the publishers think that's confusing, and I get that. Yeah. But I do think Paul had a classification for capital A apostle, uh-huh. like used in First Corinthians. Had I not, have I not seen the risen Lord? Have I not blah blah blah? You know, I think there's that. But then he seems to use it in ways that make it sound like it extends to a wider group of people. Yeah. There's still some open discussion about that, and I would be yeah. open to being being reprimanded or corrected on that. <laughs> well, um, 
yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll uh, write a little bit on it because I do yeah, find it interesting writing. if if you know that was a bigger group. And surely it was, but in what way? So, anyway, so I, um, I, I will mention I was just in a conversation on Monday with a scholar, Susan Hyland, who's fantastic, and she wrote about Tekla, uh, Thekla, some people call her, yep, who yep. was uh, part of the Axapol and Thekla. And um, this this apocryphal legend novel from early Christianity and um, a later Christian writer, I think, in the fifth century or sixth century refers to Thecla as an apostle. Mm -hmm. So the name of of Susan Highland's book is A Modest Apostle. So I said, oh, she was an apostle. But she was saying someone later on termed her an apostle didn't seem to ruffle people's feathers Mm. to to call her an apostle because it could be used in maybe a semi-technical way. Yeah, I yeah. wonder. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder about that too. Um, but I don't have enough receipts on me to even argue. If you're right going to use so. me as a research sounding board, <laughs> you have to pay me, Paxton. Okay, <laughs> I'm not just going to give you free, uh, free, free thesis advice. Can I cite my own podcast? Is that a thing? I don't know how that goes. Um, so I, I do want to jump a little bit. Um, I, I like the way you went with the general anthropology of the question, and I mean you're right in the sense that there is just always always has been a different way to argue that women can't be leaders. So there is a lot to that and I don't know how much, but I do know that some of my pastoral pastor friends, especially in the SBC um, Mm -hmm. or that go to an SBC church um, and hold to that view would still make a final stand (laughs) on two parts of leadership. And uh, those would be pastor and head of household. Um, sure. which I don't even need to go to the head of household right now. I don't feel like that's useful to time. I feel like the pastor part would be more useful. And partially the reason I say that is because I bring up people like apostle, uh, junior, the apostle, and it always makes them think a little bit longer than just like, well, they can't be pastors. Cause they're like, Oh, well, apostle yeah. seems like that would be more important. So I'd like to, if you have much, anything on that, on pastor, um, in the New Testament and how that couldn't really apply or could apply to women in a way. Yeah. Um, so a couple things of interest. One is going back to Oxyrhynchus papyri. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a woman, that a scholar, that did a study of Christian, Christian letters in the Oxyrhynchus papyri dating between 250 A.D. and 400. Okay. And she listed out all the leadership terms that were used, things like bishop, deacon, monk, uh, reader, um, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And pastor wasn't actually listed as uh, a a title that was used by Christians in that time. Interesting. Um, Now, shepherd could be used in a metaphorical way. So I got some pushback that the Mm -hmm. apostolic fathers sometimes use the term pastor, but they would mean it. They wouldn't mean it as an office, in my opinion. They would mean it as a metaphor like Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep, the pastor of the sheep, right? Well, we don't say he's a pastor. We say he's the shepherd of the sheep. So then all Christian leaders in some way are shepherds of the sheep. And I would say this applies largely to um, to uh, deacons and overseers, uh, bishops. I think they have shepherding roles in that sense. They're pastors. We just turn that into a technical term. Yeah. Um, I think it comes down to a lot of is what do you think a pastor actually does? Mm-hmm. And some people want to say the main thing of a pastor is they teach. 
Um, I don't think that's actually because if you look at the term shepherd, that's not really what a shepherd does. Yeah. And if a shepherd would correspond to Christ and correspond to the king, you know, as the shepherd of, of, of their nation, teaching is the primary thing. It's really oversight. It's really guardian, being a guardian of the people. Hmm. And so um, other people want to say, you know, discipline or uh, pastoral care, those things. You know, I want to say primary job, if we if we think of a pastor as a shepherd, is care of souls. They care for the people. They take care of the mm. people. Right. One of my favorite shows from a handful of years ago is um, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's a British doctor who is kind of grumpy and he's in charge of a little parish. He's in okay. charge of a little British parish. Um, and I just, the name of it totally escapes me. <laughs> anyway, um, what's funny is he's this really, he was this high powered surgeon in a big, in London. And then he goes to this traumatic event and he's afraid of blood. So he ends up moving to this tiny little country bumpkin town. Mm-hmm. And he ends up being just the general practitioner for the whole town. And the way the British economy works is because they have socialized medicine, it's not really a transactional thing where he's like, pay me a thousand dollars and I'll do this. He's basically just in charge of the healthcare for the whole little town. Let's say it's like a mm-hmm. hundred people, 200 people. I don't know. It's really small. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so he's in charge of this town. And so anytime, and he's really grumpy. Like he's a curmudgeon. He's the curmudgeoniest, grouchiest Scrooge, not Scrooge, mm-hmm. Grinch that you've ever met. Yeah. And what's funny about the show is because it's not monetized, whether he likes it or not, he has to take care of anybody that has a problem. So someone falls off a ladder. He just has to go help them. Like there's nobody yeah. else. Like he, so I, when I think of a pastor, the way the Bible talks about it, first Thessalonians five, honor those who, who take care of you, honor those mm-hmm. who have charge over you. It's not this authoritarian thing. It's not this heavy handed. I'm the boss. Do my will. The language of rulership is never used of Christians. It was really mm. common in Greco-Roman religion, in uh, voluntary associations and politics. Christians never used the word ruler for their leaders ever <laughs> until maybe medieval period. But um, so when I think of this doctor who just has this general sense. That I'm in charge of the well-being of these people. Mm-hmm. That's a pastor. And the question is, did God put that care into the hands of women? Now, one of the things I talk about in my book is, um, and this actually relates to the household. So this is a good segue to the other thing you're, mm-hmm. that you wanted to mention. Um, the household was the building block of society. And um, mm-hmm. in America, we have a lot of broken households. But in the ancient world, um, most households look the same in terms of having parents, having children, that sort of thing, except men often died. (laughs) They died with disease. They died going to war. Mm. So you end up having a lot of women who are running their own household. Legally, according to the books, the pater familias, the male head of household, is the boss, legally, structurally. But you have these situations where about 20 to 30% of men have gone off to war and died or got infection and died mm-hmm. or whatever happened to them. And the yeah. woman is in charge. Legally, she is allowed to be in charge. Hmm. If there is no adult male in the house that takes responsibility for the family. So she becomes mater familia. She becomes head of household. We estimate, I have some statistics in my book from documentable evidence, 
there mm-hmm. are in the Roman world there are about one out of every four households had a female head of household. Wow. Um, so then you have to ask what happens when that woman becomes a Christian mm. and she sh- starts to meet with her household yeah. like Lydia from the book of Acts or one of my favorite parts of my book teller story is a woman named Nympha. I almost wrote, I almost titled that chapter, the most important Christian you've never heard of <laughs> because she's the only evidence in the new Testament that we have of a single female house church leader. Mm. Paul didn't typically use a title when he refers to a house church leader like Priscilla and Aquila, Stephanus, Gaius, Achaicus, Philemon. He doesn't call them pastor, deacon, elder, yeah. uh, bishop. He just says, greetings to Aristobulus and your household. Greetings to Philemon and your house, Priscilla okay. and Aquila and the church that meets in your house. That's the pattern of how he refers to these house churches and their leaders. He does this with Nympha. He says, I'm in, I'm sending this letter to Colossae. You live in, let's say, Laodicea, Nympha, this woman. I want, I'm going to have them send their letter to you. You send your letter to them and switch and swap. Why does he send it to her? The, the, the pattern of language he uses makes it appear that she is the leader of her house church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that actually, now that you brought her up, was one of the big things that um, I can't remember if I did this or not. When I first found out about Junior, I like went on a tour. I was like, to all my friends and my family, I was like, have you heard of? Um, yeah, I don't know if I did one? it. <laughs> I don't know if I did it with Nympha, but this was actually pretty convincing to me. Um, I was already convinced, but um, when looking at scripture, looking at the arguments of Nympha, yeah. who, how did they do church? They did it in households. Who was the leader of the churches? The household leaders. And um, yeah, yeah. It, it just seems um, a common sense way to get to, she was a pastor. She was a guardian. She was the shepherd. Yeah. yeah. Um, or yeah. shepherdess. I don't know. So. Yeah, um, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when I, when I had, you know, I had written, I had written, um, some blog posts on the subject of women ministry. I wrote like a series on why I believe in women ministry because I hadn't done anything really proactive to support um, women pastors and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, even though I'd, I'd you know, been in that space for, for a number of years. And there was so much interest in that. There was so much hunger. And I taught, I, I walked you through, I walked you through, um, my kind of run through of history. Yeah. But I think we're actually living in a new patriarchy, um, a mm-hmm. new misogyny period. And I would put that about 2016 for a variety of reasons. One, one I think is the Trump era. Mm-hmm. One I think is the social media era. And then you add the pandemic to that. And that is like this, this storm mm-hmm. that's going to create conditions that stoke hatred and distancing and stereotyping. I'm not going to put that on all my complementarian friends. Yeah. I don't think that's the way they all think. But I think they're realizing now, I think culturally they're realizing now they lost the gender wars. Yeah. This pivot they did failed. So now the, the new patriarchy, the new misogyny is coming back. And how do I know that? We have actually a lot of magazine articles on quote unquote, masculine Christianity, right? John Piper saying 
Yeah. Uh, an urban planner can have authority because you're not looking at her, but a police officer can't because you're looking at her. Like that's. Um, how's Deborah gonna feel about that? <laughs> like you know, Israelite comes up and says, "Okay, give it to me, Deborah, but I can't look at you because it, it's going to." It's going uh, to um, emasculate me or something like that. Like, how's that going to, you know, marry the mother of Jesus? You know, one, there's a scholar, I won't name his name because I actually respect the heck out of him. But there's a scholar yeah. who said that the, the elders uh, in the New Testament church would never let a woman appear before the elders to give any feedback. Mm. And I said, if Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up at your church unannounced during an elder meeting, you're going to make her wait outside. <laughs> like, there are these women, I think, that kind of function like early Christian royalty, yep. um, the Beyonce's of the first century. Yep. And yep. I think Mary would have been one of those people. Like, would you not follow Mary around everywhere and say, tell me more stories? Or how did you do yep. this? Or how did you do that? Um, I think it's far more complex and messy. So I guess part of the, the goal of my book, you know, so then when I decided I was going to write a book. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to get bogged down and just talk about First Timothy. I didn't want to get bogged down and just talk about Ephesians. I could talk about those things. I do talk about them in the book, First Corinthians. I really wanted to just captivate people with the stories of women. Yeah. Now, oh, but they're not called pastor and da da da. Just listen to their stories. Yeah. Be inspired by their courage, their leadership, their faith, their wisdom. Who cares what you're called, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think it matters that much what you're called. People follow leaders. Yeah. They don't follow, they shouldn't follow titles. Yeah. And then I'll also say, and I don't think this is a slam dunk argument, but it's a piece of it. Look what's happening in America today with the crumble of these celebrity pastors. Most of them are men who have been hiding sin, mm-hmm. have been hiding behind their pulpits, hiding behind social media. And we have a real crisis of integrity. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying all women are perfect. I'm not saying all women would do it better. But when we don't share power, when we don't share leadership, the, we create conditions for these things to happen. Mm, yeah. And when people say, oh, do you want every pastor to be a woman? The, the biblical vision is men and women leading together like they did in the garden. Yeah. It wasn't good that Deborah was by herself. I wish that she had a partner in, in her work. Mm-hmm. It wasn't good that Samson was, and it definitely wasn't good he was with a Canaanite. But yeah. <laughs> um, I think the vision is men and women working shoulder to shoulder, which is kind of what Paul does with Yodi and Syntyche. He says, side by side, we contend for the faith of the gospel. Side by side. That's the vision. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Well, I don't want to uh, overstep my time. I appreciate you. And I know you've got books coming out probably all the time. Um, some particular, if you want to check out Nijay's social media and his uh, profile and such you can see that so I appreciate you coming on and sharing with uh, with Theology with Friends my pleasure say hi to all your dookie friends <laughs>